It's Wednesday, January the 20th, Inauguration Day in America, and you're watching Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns in this time of pandemic. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm a research fellow here at the Hoover Institution, as well as a Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow in Journalism. I'll be the moderator of today's show. Now, if this is your first time watching Goodfellows, what you're about to see is a conversation in which three Hoover Institution senior fellows, Goodfellows as we jokingly refer to them, offer their unique insights into what may lie ahead in these uncertain and complicated times. Let's meet the Goodfellows, beginning with John Cochran. John's an economist and the Hoover Institution's Rosemary and Jack Anderson senior fellow. Hello, John. Hi. Hello, everybody. Our second good fellow joining us from his wilderness outpost is Neil Ferguson. Neil's a renowned historian and author, and he is the Hoover Institution's Milbank Family Senior Fellow. Hello, Neil. Hi there, Bill. Good to be back. Good to see you, my friend. Our third good fellow, last but certainly not least, Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. He is the Hoover Institution's Fawada Michelle Ajami Senior Fellow, and he is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Battlegrounds, The Fight to Defend the Free World. Hello, H.R. Hey, Bill. Great to, great to be with everybody. Happy Inauguration Day. It is Inauguration Day, and let's see, about six hours ago, Joe Biden took the oath of office. He is now the 46th President of the United States. Uh, he succeeded in ending Donald Trump's presidency prematurely. Uh, he took the oath nine minutes before the constitutional deadline of noon today. So Trump was removed from office earlier than expected, just in the way we didn't anticipate. Um, there's a lot to unpack here with uh, Biden replacing Trump, what to expect from the Biden presidency, and our time is limited. So let me begin it this way. And I want to appeal to the two historians on the show, Neil and, and HR. Uh, let's put this moment in the historical arc of the nation. We have Lincoln in 1861 and 1865. We have FDR in 1933. We have even Ronald Reagan in 1981. These are all times of social unrest, uncertainty, America facing crises at home or abroad. Uh, Neil, HR, explain to us how Donald, uh, how uh, Joe Biden in 2021 compares and contrasts to these three previous presidencies. Take it away, Neil. I was going to let HR go first, but if you let's absolutely let's insist. Let's and I get to go too, don't I? Let's say, let's say, <laughs> no, you're HR. an economist. You're not okay. allowed to play Okay, this new game. administration, new rules. Right. HR, you started. Okay, well, I, I think this is, I, I think you're using an example of leaders who came into office really after a trauma or in, in the midst of a trauma and had to lead the, the country beyond it. So I, I think all of those presidents have lessons, I think, for. Uh, you know, for Joe Biden. Uh, and of course, you know, what, what these were, the periods of time that you mentioned, were, were, were wartime in two cases, and, uh, but, but experiences that, that brought Americans together, right, across different backgrounds and social strata to overcome that, that challenge. Of course, the most destructive war in our history is, was the Civil War, uh, and, and, then, and then coming out of World War II. Will I guess the question is, will this be a period of, of greater unity as the president laid out in, in his inauguration speech, or will we continue on the path that we've been on in, in, in recent years, I would say decades, you know, of increasing polarization uh, and, and polarization that has an effect of diminishing our confidence in our common identity and in our democratic principles, institutions and processes. So, you know, I think the president's off to a great start in that connection. President Biden is in terms of the message in the speech. And now, of course, it'll be following up that speech with actions. And then as we discussed actually in, in the last episode, Bill and and and, uh, and uh, Neil and John is, is that I think one of the first things to do is to ensure that, that President Biden and, and others in the, in the Democratic Party foster unity by not painting 
all of uh, of Trump voters with the same brush that they paint those, for example, who stormed the Capitol. Right. And and right. Uh, and even though Donald Trump is no longer president, what brought him into office it was in large measure discontent with political elites. Right. And those who are coming into this administration are those who served in previous administrations. And of course, the president serving in Washington for, for half half a century. So, so um, I mean, there, there are challenges to overcome, but I, you know, I'm optimistic about it at this point. I think, uh, I think we should support, obviously, the president's effort uh, to, to make good on, on, on that, uh, on the great comments that he made in connection with unity in the country. So I, I'm going to offer some alternative analogies because I don't think the wartime analogies are particularly illuminating. Uh, we're not coming out of uh, of a major war. We're coming out of a pandemic. Uh, coming is a key word because we're not out of it yet. In fact, the worst may still be to come. Uh, and I'm reminded uh, of the uh, the period a uh, hundred years ago uh, when Warren Harding uh, won the presidency uh, on a on a campaign pledge to restore normalcy, and that is very much a part of Joe Biden's appeal that after the distinctly abnormal Trump presidency, which broke all kinds of uh, norms, uh, Joe Biden personifies a political establishment. Uh, He's been around uh, for so long that most of us don't remember a period in American politics when Joe Biden wasn't uh, a a fixture. Uh, And the helpful thing about this analogy is that uh, you might want normalcy, but you don't necessarily get it. Uh, It wasn't really uh, as if the Harding presidency was a a roaring success. Uh, In many ways, the uh, the early 1920s were a period of of ongoing uh, instability. People tend to remember the roaring 20s, and you might have heard the analogy that we're going to have the roaring 20s now as we come out of the pandemic. I'm a little skeptical about this idea that the 20s were just uh, flappers, fun, and uh, great Gatsby-esque parties. That's not actually a very accurate account of an extraordinarily turbulent decade. The other analogy that seems to me relevant here is actually quite recent. When Barack Obama uh, was sworn in, uh, there was a very similar media response. People kind of forget this, but the media enormously wanted Obama to succeed. The perception was uh, that the previous presidency had been unsuccessful. Uh, George W. Bush actually ended his time in office with lower approval ratings than Donald Trump, though that's largely been forgotten too. Uh, And of course, uh, if there was one thing that Obama could do, it was deliver uh, an uplifting inaugural address. Uh, But in reality, uh, very little of what was in that address uh, was delivered on uh, in the Obama presidency. And certainly the kind of national unity that was sought in the wake of the financial crisis, as HR has said, was uh, was not forthcoming. And I rather suspect, at the risk of being the the party pooper, that within a few days, uh, these grand appeals uh, to unity, just as happened in the Obama presidency, uh, will be forgotten and we will get back to the partisan trench warfare that has characterized Washington politics for so long now. Right. John? Do I get my turn, even though I'm not a, I'm an amateur historian. <laughs> I'm a resident skeptic, so go for it. <laughs> uh, so I, I, uh, I agree with Neil. The, the um, war is not the right analogy. Um, the uh, analogies of uh, Obama uh, in uh, 2008 is a good one. Uh, Roosevelt in 1933, um, the taking over at the, at the bottom of the Great, Re- Great Depression. Uh, we have 
two clear crises. Um, we have a pandemic that needs not so much rivers of money, which our government seems good at, but um, actual management competence. Uh, and um, uh, to, to his credit, Biden put that pretty much first on his list, uh, both of what he needs to do and, and how he needs to do it. Um, we have an economic pr uh, problem, uh, which I think will resolve itself more quickly, certainly than 1933 did. Uh, we have a crisis of partisanship uh, uh, that is not just Donald Trump and his evil cohorts, but has been an escalating series of tit-for-tat breaking of norms on both sides. Uh, and it is time for unity, and Biden hit the right uh, message on that. It's time to uh, listen to each other and not just uh, denounce the other side. Uh, that's going to be harder. Uh, he only got a B plus from me out of that because it would be, have been nice to not to follow it with we need to stop the lies. And, and we know whose side lies he's talking about there. Um, but to give an example of listening to something difficult from the other side, uh, for example, the need to clean up elections, even though this one was not stolen. Um, but that an example or an example of some, um, I don't like to use the word lies, uh, some fibs that have been maintained from his own side that need investigation. We need to come together on that. That, that is going to be the challenge. Um, the temptation will be like Obama in uh, 2008 to blow that on, to, to lose focus on uh, that, that. I mean, that's enough, but to lose focus and to go off into other things as Obama um, gave some stimulus money and passed an enormous Dodd-Frank Act. And that was that for the financial crisis and went off to wade into healthcare. Um, Biden went on to say uh, he views climate as a crisis and systemic racism as a crisis that require immediate action. And um, there's a long list of other uh, things on the agenda. Uh, those those are, are problems, but uh, you can only do so much uh, when you're doing stuff at the right time. And that uh, I think there's going to be a temptation to uh, be like Roosevelt and pass your 100 days of totally change the economy. Well, this isn't the moment for uh, everybody seems to want to be Roosevelt. It isn't the moment for 100 days and it isn't the moment to repeat Roosevelt's economic policies, which seems to be very much in fashion among democratic economists. There's nothing like fiscal stimulus, a now 90-year-old salve for everything that aims us, ails us. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm skeptical of that one. And I think uh, exactly as Neil said, but I'm going to say it over again louder, the temptation will be, uh, yeah, we want unity. There's two kinds of unity. There is, um, you know, Romeo and Juliet just died. Let's try to settle our differences and listen to each other unity that he called for. And then there's the kind of unity that much of his party, the Lincoln Project, for example, uh, is calling for, which is the kind of unity the Chinese government likes. They we're going to rub it out, and you all have to agree, like with be like us, uh, kind of unity. I, I'll, I'll pass on a word I learned listening to NPR yesterday. Um, both sideism, both sideism is now an evil, uh, horrible moral failing. Uh, listening to the other side as opposed to simply denouncing them and and squashing them as political enemies. Uh, there, as, as I forget if it was Neil or HR, there's going to be a temptation to tar the entire Republican Party, anybody who ever worked with Trump, uh, with the very small number of, of the crazy types who um, took over the Capitol, as opposed to the uh, millions who, who still support Donald Trump and need to be brought uh, gently uh, into the fold. And that's going to, that's a strong temptation within the party. That's if, if you read Nancy Pelosi, what she wants to do, her House Resolution 1 is not listen to the other side. It's uh, it's grab the rules of power and and keep them. And let I, so I really salute Joe Biden. I think he is quite sincere that that's what he wants to do. 
And now we get to, to see if that's what gets uh, executed by his administration. Now, I'm not familiar with what Warren Harding did this first day in office, Neil. He probably played poker. That was one of the uh, several really notorious things that uh, Harding was famous for. Um, but what Joe Biden has already done or is doing as we speak is he's signing uh, executive orders. It's 17 of them. I'll give you a very quick rundown of some of these because I want you to tell me, is this just something to do to blow off steam with your own party? Or is there a preview of coming attractions? And among the executive orders that he is signing or has signed or intends to sign, rejoining the Paris Climate Agreement, rejoining the World Health Organization, starting 100 days masking challenge. This is wearing a mask on uh, federal lands and federal buildings, restructuring the federal government, bringing back an Obama-era construct called the Directorate for Global Health Security and Biodefense, extending eviction and foreclosure moratoriums, continuing pause on student loans through the end of September, handling the Muslim travel ban, counting non-citizens in the U.S. Census again, stopping the border wall construction, and finally, something very dry called advancing racial equality through the federal government, which is actually the Office of Manager and Budget, analyzing whether federal money is equitably distributed in communities of color and other places of need. The question, gentlemen, is this, again, just venting, appealing to your base, or is this going to be business as usual in the Biden administration? Well, Bill, you did a great job of making that sound really boring. And I think part of what uh, people uh, are quietly hoping for is a boring presidency and a time when politics is no longer the dominant topic of conversation in this country. But in close inspection, the 17 uh, uh, executive orders or actions are not boring at all. Uh, and one thing that's interesting to me is that for a president who's talking about unity and bipartisanship and says he wants to try and work uh, with Republicans in the Senate, uh, Joe Biden is uh, setting out a stall on immigration that is almost calculated to antagonize uh, Republicans. Uh, and this we saw coming uh, last week when Vice President Harris and uh, Joe Biden started talking about uh, their plans for immigration reform, which include uh, a path to citizenship for 11 million uh, undocumented or illegal uh, immigrants. Uh, so I, I must say my first response to that was, hmm, that doesn't sound like something that's going to go over very well with Senate Republicans. Uh, and then you look at this list of 17 things. I mean, about a third of them are to do with immigration. Uh, that That's point one. It doesn't seem like uh, an obvious way to uh, find common ground with Republicans. Uh, but it does seem like an obvious way of playing to uh, the Democratic Party's uh, more progressive wing. Uh, the second point I'd make is one that echoes a really good article our colleague Jack Goldsmith just published in The Atlantic with an unlikely co-author, Samuel Moyne, one of the more uh, left-wing members of the faculty at the Yale Law School. Their, their point is a good one. What this shows us is that the style of presidential government uh, the use of executive action and orders is not going to stop. Barack Obama used it a lot. Donald Trump just carried on. Uh, and now, of course, we see Joe Biden using exactly the same technique to undo things that Trump did. Uh, the media cheering uh, this on because, of course, they like these executive actions, whereas they hated Trump's. But the central point is that this isn't really how our constitution is supposed to work. It's not really how presidents are supposed to rule. These are decrees, uh, royal decrees, sawest ukases, rather than legislation. And I think they speak to a, a structural problem with American government that goes back well before Trump and doesn't look like getting fixed under Biden. Mm -hmm. 
HR. Yeah, I, I would agree with Neil. And I would say from a foreign policy perspective, you know, executive orders you know, are quite easy to reverse. And, and if you want a policy to stick, if you want, uh, if you want an agreement to stick, you make it into a, a treaty, right? And do the work within the Senate to get it ratified. You know, a lot of people were you know, disappointed in some of President Trump's decisions to pull out of Paris, for example. Well, you know, let's make it you know, get, gain congressional approval for it if you really want it to, to stick. Uh, or the Iran nuclear deal is another, another example. But you know, I, I agree with Neil. These executive orders, you know, they, they actually don't get a lot done either, really, you know, a lot of times. Uh, and, and, uh, and I think it's important for, you know, the, for you know, any administration uh, to try to build a degree of consensus, you know, behind these policy decisions. Reversing Trump decisions is one thing, I and mean, that's understandable, I think, for a Biden administration if they don't agree with it. But I think going forward with policies, domestic as well as foreign policy, I think it's time now for for us to to try to take a longer term view that's sustainable and isn't and, and isn't easily reversed, such that we really we lose our confidence in, in our ability to affect a, a sustained foreign policy or 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 domestic uh, policies. Immigration, I think, is a great example of the limitations associated with executive orders. Right? We've been we've been battling the you know the the, the status uh, of of you know, of of the dreamers and and you know, and and those uh, who are temporarily granted uh, the ability to remain in this country, and they're in limbo. Right? It can't be good to be in their situation, and I don't think it's good for the country either. So there are real opportunities for immigration reform, but those have to be done, you know, in in coordination with the first branch of government. Mm-hmm. Let me uh, uh, chime in here. I'm going to try to be a little more optimistic. Um, granted, so government by battling executive orders is uh, doesn't look good. And I'm remind, I don't know if this story is true, uh, but it's too good it's too good a story to check up on. That early in its history of the city of Chicago, it alternated between German and Irish mayors. And the first act that each mayor would do would be to uh, allow the drinking of whiskey and forbid the drinking of beer, and then conversely to allow the drinking of beer and forbid the drinking of whiskey by executive order day one. And we're kind of in that uh, in that uh, position. It's funny, even you know, uh, conservatives <clears throat> like like many of us um, have complained about the uh, administrative state and and law by rules. Executive, there is such a thing as rulemaking, which requires the Administrative Procedure Act and costs and benefits. We're not even bothering with rules anymore. We just sort of write decrees. Um, but there is, um, as long as government stays closely divided and we switch presidents every two years, uh, then there's the question of which executive orders get overturned on day one and which one quietly stick. And perhaps the most interesting aspect here is which executive orders did the Biden administration choose not to overturn on day one and will quietly say, boy, thanks for doing the hard stuff for us. And uh, we're not going to overturn that one not immediately. And in fact, you know, when we look at the 17 you mentioned, I'm actually not against most of them. <laughs> uh, they, they, they picked some kind of uh, some, some things that the Trump administration had done that uh, don't seem to be very simple. What does stand out here, of course, is the, the Keystone Pipeline uh, and the, uh, the new equity, diversity, and so forth, uh, um, racial justice uh, bureaucracy. Both, which point out the the um, the, uh, the the things uh, very much on the mind of the left wing uh, 
the Democratic Party. The Keystone Pipeline, so those of us who don't, who don't remember, you have to go back a long way. Uh, this is a pipeline that brings oil um, and it avoids oil traveling on rail cars, which is what oil does otherwise, which is way more dangerous and emits way more carbon and so on and so forth. And it makes a mockery of the idea that the US is um, uh, the land of rule of law and property rights and things are adjust, uh, adjudicated based on their merits as opposed to simply political whim about the symbolism of climate change. Because of course, the Keystone Pipeline, let me hazard a, what the science would say about it. It will change global temperatures in the year 2100 by 0. 0.00001 degree, or maybe I have a O in the wrong place. Um, um, the, um, but both of the, this does come from the, the central problem that, that we have an impasse in the legislature. And if the legislature could uh, could do its job, we wouldn't have this sort of thing. I do think um, immigration is a, a festering wound. And if you get people quietly to talk, uh, both sides recognize the need for immigration reform. There is uh, lots of common ground for a sensible immigration reform. Uh, that's another place where a stability, property rights, rule of law, knowing long-term how things are gonna work uh, is important. Uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, that's a great place where it's too bad it's just an executive or, or at least not a temporary one while we really work on a legislative package. You, you want to work across the aisle and fashion something bipartisan. That would be a good place to get the uh, to get the um, uh, to get things going. And in addition, uh, the job is supposed to be unity and listening to the other side. Uh, and there's a lot of deplorables across the middle of the U.S. who are very unhappy right now who would like to know that immigration is gonna be handled in a messy consultative way and not simply by um, alternating executive orders so one way or the other. Okay, so question gentlemen, uh, if we agree that COVID is what, it's what brought this show together, it's also what brought uh, Joe Biden to office. And if he cannot tame the pandemic, it's gonna bring a very ugly end to his presidency. Uh, he has ideas. He wants to deliver 100 million injections in his first 100 days in office. John, there's your FDR 100 day mark. Uh, he wants to uh, set up more vaccination clinics. He wants to use the Defense Production Act to ensure supplies. Uh, in his own words, quote, we will manage the hell out of this operation. Um, you've seen what he's proposed. How confident are you that he has the right ideas here? Uh, Neil HR and John, what does he need to do to get COVID under control? Well, I think it's uh, going to be a mistake if Joe Biden gives the impression uh, that uh, he can bring this under control. Uh, by presidential fiat. Just at the moment when new strains of the virus are bearing down on the United States in ways that are likely to uh, cause the third wave, which is already the largest uh, we've seen, to get even larger, uh, it's especially troubling uh, that there are strains in South Africa and Brazil which appear uh, to get past uh, the um, antibodies acquired from previous infection. Uh, if that turns out to pose a threat to the efficacy of vaccines, uh, we are not gonna be out of the woods uh, as fast as I had certainly been hoping a few weeks ago. Uh, sure, uh, you can make it sound as if uh, you're ramping up vaccination, but vaccination was ramping up already. Uh, and the delays uh, are mostly delays uh, at the state level caused by rather ridiculous uh, over-bureaucratic rules about who gets vaccinated first. 
which I think will all fall away in the coming months because there's going to be abundant vaccines available by the time we get to March. So things are going to change dramatically in the following way. First, it's going to get worse. And the Biden people are already trying to talk uh, expectations down, uh, hoping that that deterioration will get blamed on the Trump administration. And then they're going to get markedly better as vaccination plus natural immunity gets us towards the herd immunity threshold that means uh, the reproduction number comes down below one and we no longer have this sense of uh, ongoing waves or we get the sense that the wave is crested. And things will improve quite rapidly so that by May, uh, it's going to start to feel as if it's over. And at that point, it will be springtime for Biden in America uh, because I strongly suspect that the feel-good factor as the uh, as the pandemic seems to come to an end, combined with an economic surge, as all that accumulated spending from all those government checks finds its way into a reopening economy, these things are going to be very good uh, for Joe Biden, uh, and he's going to look uh, he's going to look by the summer uh, as if uh, yes, we should be singing "Happy Days Are Here Again." Mm-hmm. HR. Yeah, hey, I really don't have much to add to that. I agree completely with Neil's analysis. You know, the, the this is logistics, right, at this point in terms of getting the vaccine out there. And whenever you target just a really a discrete or a small recipient uh, of, of supplies, it's it's tougher to get that to that that smaller targeted community. Once it is opened up to to you know to larger numbers of Americans, it's going to go very. I think it's going to go very quickly. So I'm still optimistic about you know about the, the getting the vaccine out there. Quickly, uh, and of course, as, as Neil mentioned, uh, this is going to generate, I think, uh, you know, a tremendous restoration of confidence, uh, and and that that is going to have an economic benefit as well. So, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, I, I think it's it's really not going to be a dramatic change, you know, from the from the Trump administration approach. Frankly, I think they're billing it as such for for obvious reasons. It's understandable, right? New administration coming in criticizing the approach of the previous administration. Um, but, but I think it's not going to be a, a, a big shift uh, in the plan that already exists to distribute the vaccine. By the I'll way, emphasize. can I just add one thing before John uh, chips <laughs> in? We actually have a little way uh, uh, of looking at the future, and that is Israel uh, and the UK, which are ahead of uh, the US and vaccination, in the case of Israel, far ahead. And so we can see what's happening there. And uh, it's not an entirely encouraging picture because the new strains that were first identified in the UK are now driving up case numbers in both those countries. Uh, Looks as if things are going to start improving in terms of illness, uh, because with vaccination, you start to get the people who are most vulnerable into a position of being safer. Uh, But it's it's still a little too early to say it's working. But we'll know, looking at Israel and the UK, quite a lot more about our future in the coming weeks. And I, I have my fingers crossed that we're going to see a dramatic improvement uh, in those two countries as their vaccination programs forge ahead. Sorry, John, I didn't mean to... No, no, uh, and, and, and quick, and Quickly, John, because I want to get you into uh, American Rescue Plan and economics. So. Okay, well, uh, but um, I do want to say on this one, because I've been writing about this a bit. The number one thing is, of course, to get out of the way. Uh, and there's been a lot in the way. The ridiculous rationing rules, which have led uh, many um, uh, doses to be thrown out rather than uh, risk give it to somebody who's in the wrong place in the line. Right, um, right now, the, the long time it took the FDA to certify it, they are still not allowing the AstraZeneca 
AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson uh, vaccine, which is certified in the UK, but they were mad at them. So they made them go through another set of trials. That's a vaccine that costs two to three bucks a dose and it can be stored at room temperature. Amazon could send it to you. We, we could be, you know, get out of the way is number one. Two, this doesn't need, you need the Defense Production Act when you're running out of money, you need to build aircraft carriers and you need to build them now. The amount of money that's involved here is just trivial compared to the, certainly compared to the trillions that are being sent out in checks. Mm -hmm. uh, so in this, sometimes you need, uh, I was hoping HR was going to go on on the wonderfuls of military logistics. Sometimes you need military logistics, not here. These are private sector logistics. Yeah. We are still vaccinating COVID at a slower rate than we vaccinate for the flu every fall. So uh, Amazon, CVS, Walgreens, they know how to do this. Uh, you don't need a grand national program, but you do need attention to it. And, and to get the hell, getting out of the way actually takes attention. And I, I think they really uh, need to do that. Uh, we are in a race uh, between bureaucracy and exponential growth and evolution. Uh, slow vaccinating is actually dangerous because it lets the vaccine evolve, uh, it lets the virus uh, evolve around the vaccine. Uh, people may lose immunity as fast as you're vaccinating to get them. So it, it really needs to be done quickly. Uh, and then I agree with Neil. Um, this thing, if you just let it go and let the vaccines happen, um, this, could, this could well be pretty much over by summer, which would be wonderful. Okay, John mentioned the writing of checks, which takes us to the American Rescue Plan, which is the Biden $1.9 trillion spending plan. Uh, the one thing I think Republicans and Democrats gather uh, together can agree upon spending of money. Uh, the Biden plan includes stimulus checks, national vaccine distribution program, aid to stage jobless benefits, a $15 minimum wage, rent assistance, school reopenings. Uh, gentlemen, American rescue, if America needs to be rescued, is this sound economic policy? What would you propose to be done? That's one for the economists, surely. <laughs> Well, this is one where I invite, this is so easy, I invite my fellow historians uh, <laughs> to join in. Uh, the, this is not 1933, and it's not a hard problem. Uh, our, our central economic problem is that we have this disease running rampant, and uh, the bureaucracy has largely made things worse. I think about how long, they didn't let us have the tests, they didn't let us have the masks, uh, they took a long time to let the vaccines out. Um, they, and then there's rules about the, that slow the vaccine. Just we need to get a hold of the disease is number one. Uh, the, the, and then so a lot of the, what is the reason for the rest of this? Well, we need to help people who are economically hurt. But most of this money is just going flying out the window uh, to a whole bunch so one one part there was a new um, a new subsidy for racehorses, uh, which was extended. You know, thousands of pages of stuff like this. Um, I, I think the two thousand dollar checks are will just stand as an emblem uh, that the idea that our our government's major the one thing it seems to be able to do is just send checks to voters. Um, whether those voters have it, remember, even if ten percent are unemployed, that means nine out of ten have a job. Uh, these checks go to people who are retired and have, you know, everybody could use more money, but the money comes from somewhere, guys. So the idea that we need a fiscal stimulus right now to get the economy going, just this is not 1933 anymore. So um, it, the amount of money needed to fight the virus is trivial. The amount of money needed to help people hurt by the virus, if it can be targeted with any sort of accuracy, is, is substantial, but we're spending way more than that. So now does 
does money count anymore? Now we're getting into sort of the deeper um, economic issue of our time. Does the federal government have unbounded ability to borrow money and never to pay it back? Uh, Janet Yellen said, oh, interest rates are so low. Now's the time to borrow a lot of money and do whatever with it. Um, Washington is following the logical conclusions of that proposition much further than most of the economists who came up with it are going. Uh, if the federal government can borrow money and never pay back, why should any of us have to pay back student loans, mortgages? Why should we have to work for a living? Why should we have to pay taxes? Uh, this is a, a larger dangerous idea that is going to go down, um, that's gonna follow us uh, much uh, past, uh, past the, uh, the end of COVID. Okay, so Neil is the author of Doom. When is the economic reckoning? Well, that's a tough one because we, we know that uh, it takes time for a labor market to recover from a shock. Uh, and that is going to be the focus of Janet Yellen at the Treasury. We know that uh, one of the most important continuities between the Trump and Biden administrations will be the desire to get to full employment. Nobody's going to admit this, uh, but the Democrats watched what Trump did and said, hmm, that worked. Uh, now, they won't do it the way that Trump did it, which was partly through tax cuts and partly through supply-side reforms and deregulation. They would love to do it with, uh, with Keynesian methods, uh, but they're certainly going to run the economy hot uh, in pursuit of full employment. And they're going to look away when inflation goes above 2% and the expectations already expected to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, we know also uh, that they have learned some lessons or think they've learned lessons from the Obama experience. Uh, they're going to go large on fiscal policy and make sure that the Fed remains accommodative throughout. Uh, so I think uh, that means no talk of taper. And anybody at the Fed who says the word taper will have their knuckles publicly wrapped by Jay Powell, who very much wants to keep his job because, I don't know, maybe it's fun being Fed chair. It doesn't look like fun to me, but he clearly enjoys it. So I think what we're going to see is a very interesting experiment where we pile fiscal stimulus on with another uh, substantial uh, bill, uh, which they can do even if Republicans don't vote for it through reconciliation. Fed is going to just stand pat, carry on buying uh, 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 treasuries and certainly not even looking at, at moving rates. And then we'll see what happens. Uh, and you asked me, when do the problems arise? Yes. Well, that's the tricky bit. Uh, I don't think it's likely to be this year. Uh, although, remember, if you're doing fiscal and monetary stimulus on top of a successful vaccination, the economy could really catch fire in the middle of the year. Uh, and that might just start causing jitters uh, amongst the Fed staffers if inflation really does uh, move significantly uh, above 2%. Let's see. So there are two scenarios, I think. One of which is things get uh, really red hot in the middle of the year in the second half, uh, and then there start to be uh, anxiety attacks. Uh, about the bond market and about the dollar. The other scenario is that there's a little bit more bad news still to come in the form of new variants or vaccine hiccups. And that means there's not going to be any significant downside from the point of view of uh, stimulative policy until sometime in 2022. Mm -hmm. John, you're nodding your head. Oh, I'm, I'm nodding my head. I was, I was going to let HR say something and then and then. No, I'm gonna, I want to get to foreign policy with HR. So why don't you close out? Oh, on well, let me. Yeah. yeah. So I agree uh, uh, with Neil. Um, this is not 1933. 
this recession is a classic supply shock, if you will. We know what happened. It's not a financial crisis. Uh, it's there's not lots there's, there's um, not banks going under. Uh, there's a vac- there's a disease out there. Uh, already, the fall in GDP was faster than ever seen before, and the recovery uh, has been faster than ever seen before. So I agree with Neil. There's every reason to believe uh, that there's lots of money sitting around uh, when this goes away. Uh, I think the labor markets as well as uh, output markets will recover very, very quickly. Now, there will be changes. Um, right. Not every job is coming. People, we, they, they like to add up how many jobs were lost, but this, all, the same number of jobs can be gained uh, just in different places. Uh, there's a big move out of San Francisco and in different industries, although I think restaurants and, and that sort of stuff will come back quickly as well. The interesting thing will be to see, um, so there was quite a success on, under the Trump uh, administration. The Trump CEA um, was really uh, behind it, really did some innovative things and thought completely differently. They thought about taxes as incentives, about deregulation as helping businesses, and it will be interesting to see if this is one of those things that you accept from the prior administration, you quietly say thank you and keep it, uh, or whether you go back to orthodoxy. Um, the corporate tax rate was an Obama-era idea. Right. They recognized that our corporate tax rates were, were damaging to business. They wanted to lower them. It became a Trump idea, so it became evil. Uh, but now um, with the 50 to 1 Congress, it's going to be very interesting as an example to see what they do about taxes. There's an ideology that says we have to raise taxes. Now, it's a little bit paradoxical. The government apparently has all the ability to borrow anyone needs. So why are you hot to raise taxes? But we have to raise taxes to hit the corporations and get the rich and so forth. Well, uh, we've learned something about marginal tax rates again and it'll be interesting to see how hot they are to do that. But I, I agree with Neil. My 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 hope is uh, my to the extent I do forecasts. Um, when the disease passes, a very quick rebound, something like a 1920s party. I'm not sure we get the 1920s boom. Uh, to go back to the 1920s, it was not just uh, accumulated money sitting in bank accounts because no one could go out to restaurants in 1918. Uh, the 1920s were uh, an unparalleled decade because we invented the automobile, uh, the telephone, the record player, um, uh, electric appliances throughout houses. It, it was the technological supply side boom of all time. So whether we have a continued boom after the party is over in 21, 21, 2022, that depends on deregulation, low marginal tax rates, property rights, rule of law, all the sorts of things that let a an innovation-led boom happen. And uh, well, we'll see about that. HR, have you been to Cornwall in the UK? <laughs> I have. It's a great spot. And, uh, and of course, you're, I think you're alluding to the G7 that, right. that's going to be held there. And, and what will be, I think, uh, President Biden's first overseas trip, uh, the G7, in, instead of uh, you know, a symbolic trip to uh, you know, a country of choice or, or the, the long trip that President uh, Trump took uh, at, the, at the outset of, of his presidency to the, to the Middle East and, yes, you, and, you read and like Europe. The, read me like the cheap novel that I am, HR. Um, Trump's, uh, Biden's reported first overseas trip is going to be to the G7 in June. Uh, this is a departure from um, Trump, who famously went to Saudi Arabia, Obama, who went to Egypt. Um, but you look at foreign policy in the Biden administration, HR, and what do you see? A lot of recycling. You see Susan Rice, well, she's doing domestic policy, but she's around. John Kerry, Samantha Powell. 
Bauer, Wendy Sherman. It's sort of like they just moved the Harvard Kennedy School down south to Washington, if you will. Uh, a lot of Biden people coming back in HR, just having the same old crew back in mean the same old ideas and the same old approach. Well, I hope not, Bill. You know, it's, it's funny to, to look at uh, and listen to the revisionist depictions of, of uh, the Obama era foreign policy, which I think in many ways was disastrous. You know, I think maybe the, the greatest achievement you could say of the Obama administration foreign policy was to empower Iran across the greater Middle East uh, with disastrous effects, especially for the people in the region who have suffered a tremendous humanitarian catastrophe as a result of the sectarian violence centered on the Syrian civil war, for example, the rise of ISIS. Uh, it really the, and, and so I, I think you know, the, 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 these are smart people. Uh, I, hopefully they've learned, I think, from some of those experiences uh, and, and will make adjustments. So if I could just quickly run through a, a couple of key policy points and where I think the trajectory is going to be, and then I'd love to hear what, hear what Neil and, and, uh, and John think of this, I think there's going to be a great deal of consistency between the Trump administration policy on China uh, and, and, uh, and the Obama administration policy on China. A big reason for that will be Xi Jinping and and the continued aggression of the of the Chinese Communist Party. But I think also a recognition on the on the part of the president's advisors. And you heard Tony Blinken testify to this uh, in, in front of the Senate that that you know the, the competitive the switch to a competitive approach with the Chinese Communist Party uh, was appropriate and and overdue and, and will be sustained. I think again, shockingly, probably to some to some of our viewers, <laughs> there'll be a great deal of continuity in Russia policy because despite President Trump's penchant for for giving Putin an out on some issues, the policy was actually quite strong in in terms of sanctions imposed on Putin and those who enable uh, his aggressive actions uh, internationally. And then and then I think on on uh, on the Middle East, the 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 key policy will be toward Iran. And this is, I think, the area that's most troubling, because I think this is where the Biden team is really nostalgic. Right. To bring back the good old days of the Iran nuclear deal, uh, which was, you know, I think a a, a, dip, a, a political disaster masquerading as a diplomatic triumph, uh, as, as I alluded to earlier. So so I, I think, you know, there are going to be elements of continuity and discontinuity. Uh, these are smart people. I hope that that they certainly recognize that you can't turn the clock back to 2016. Uh, and there are elements of continuity uh, with the Trump, uh, the Trump administration's foreign policy that ought to be sustained. I agree with that. I think the most important point you just made, HR, is that China policy uh, is going to be continued uh, with marginal tweaks. No one's going to acknowledge this, but Trump's policy on China was a radical break with the policy of the Obama administration, uh, which you may remember Joe Biden served in, as did almost his entire national security team. Uh, so what nobody's saying out loud is that all these people, uh, including Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, Tony Blinken, who's going to be secretary of state from now on, uh, not forgetting Kurt Campbell, who's going to be the so-called Asia Tsar on the National Security Council. All these people have had something of a come-to-Jesus moment on the issue of China and have realized that, in fact, it wasn't a win-win uh, cooperative relationship but a win-lose relationship that the Chinese had in mind. So this is a really big deal in my view, because historically the most important thing the Trump administration did was to change strategy on China. HR, you played an absolutely crucial role in that back when you were national security advisor. And nobody's admitting it, but this is the policy that's going to continue. And if you don't believe me, take a look at Kurt Campbell's article that was published just the other day in Foreign Affairs, just about the time he was announced as the uh, so-called A 
Asia Tsar, it states explicitly that the goal of policy should be uh, to build, I quote, an allied and partner coalition to address China's challenge to the balance of power in Asia. Uh, so I think it's extremely important to notice that the Biden administration may even be more combative towards China on some issues, uh, human rights issues, for example. Notice Tony Blinken tweeted uh, rather combatively on the issue of Hong Kong. You'll remember that while the capital was being stormed by crazed uh, QAnon uh, conspiracy theorists, the Chinese were locking up the remaining leaders of the democracy movement in Hong Kong. So I think it's really important that there's no turning back the clock to the Obama era with, with respect to China policy. And China policy is going to be the dominant issue uh, of the Biden administration's foreign policy, without a doubt. So let me just add um, my, my I'm not always the grumpy economist, my optimistic note about divided government and the chance for each administration to uh, throw out what it didn't like of the last one, but to quietly recognize that there are things they did that uh, we don't say it in public, but you know we thank you and, and we'll keep doing that. Um, so we'll get a continued China policy, except hopefully one with allies. This is not one you can go it alone. So um, we will probably re hopefully rejoin the TPP and try to build our alliances with, with people there and confront China together and thoughtfully. Um, we will do it uh, not with idiotic tariffs, um, also <laughs> unilateral tariffs. Uh, we'll do it in a more sensible way. Uh, similarly, as I look at the Middle East, uh, right, I, I don't think they can go back and say we'll just sit down and and uh, and the Iranians will do will will re re get that deal going again. I see more of an and there's a great success with uh, policy. You know the 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 Abraham Accords. Uh, I cannot imagine that even the Biden people uh, look at don't look at that and say, oh my God, we were wrong for about forty years in a row. And um, there's uh, Israel and the various uh, other parts of the Middle East are, are getting together. And uh, that's very good for security on its own. And they're getting together to, con uh, to um, confront Iran and the mess in Syria. And, uh, and, and, um, and, and that's worth cheering about as well. Uh, so, uh, so now human rights are extremely important. I hope that they can, that our foreign policy won't be too tinged with obsessions about climate or at least false policies about climate. And it is true, remains true. The number one climate issue is that China builds a coal-fired power plant uh, every week um, and electric cars in California aren't going to offset that. Um, but uh, overall, I, I, I would agree with my fellow panelists here. It looks like they're going to uh, take, let's, let us hope, and there's reason to hope that they will quietly take the lessons of the last four years and quietly jettison some of the failures, at least in, in um, tactics of the last four years. Uh, and um, good things will come of it. HR, final question for you on this topic. Uh, you look at the lineup in the Biden administration. Uh, Susan Rice has a domestic policy job, but she has a relationship with the president. And let's assume that if she doesn't like the way things are going a foggy bottom, she might express her opinion to the president. John Kerry is a lead person on climate change. He's a former secretary of state. He's been given a pretty wide reign. He can attend NSC meetings. If you're the national security advisor, there'd be John Kerry looking at you. How does Joe Biden, who himself is no stranger to the world stage, how does he reinforce to this group that I am the commander in chief? This is my foreign policy, not yours. 
Well, I think a lot of it will have to do with the National Security Council process that uh, Jake Sullivan s- steps up. And, you know, good luck, right? I mean, because it's really the National Security Advisor who has the president as his or her only client, and and who has to run the, the process, a collaborative process across the departments and agencies that gives the president options, right? That helps the president determine, uh, you know, his agenda, his foreign policy agenda, and then helps the president make decisions consistent with that agenda, and then assist with tracking. Uh, through the departments and agencies, the sensible implementation of those decisions. So, you know, it's not always a harmonious relationship, right? Uh, and, and uh, you know, there, there were bumps in the road for, for me as, as well uh, within the West Wing of the White House and, and across departments and agencies. And I think when, when you encounter that kind of that friction is to try to make that friction creative and to, and to do so and to respond to it in a way that maybe increases the trust in, in your organization as the National Security Council staff, and trust in the collaborative process, and the way that I responded to it was to be more tra- more transparent, more collaborative, right? And and uh, and so I, you know, we'll, we'll, the other the other option is to draw in, right? To draw in and for a national security advisor to have a very closed process and to and to kind of end run some things around departments and agencies. You know, I, I think that you know Tony Blinken and Jake Sullivan have a very good relationship. That's a very important one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know Lloyd Austin, who's going to be Secretary of Defense. He's a very collaborative person. Uh, you know, Avril Haynes knows this process well. So, uh, you know, I, I think you know, it may not be all bad uh, news, but there's going to be, uh, as a result of, of the those people understanding that that process has to work effectively for the president. Uh, but there is going to be friction, as, as, as you, you mentioned, I think. And, and, uh, and I think whatever the, the best approach that I found is, you know, for example, as you know, there were a number of Trump initiatives, there were some self-styled strategists you know, in, the, in the West Wing. And what I tried to do is just, you know, you try, you know, I, I, you maybe describe this as, a, as you know, animals roaming the plane, you know, foreign policy, national security. Well, I tried to, to bring them in, you know, bring them into the process, into the tent and say, hey, you have an idea? Great. Bring it into this process and let us uh, you know, bring this option as, as, a, as one option in a number of options to the president. There, there are some people, of course, though, who aren't interested in that. Right? They're not, they don't want to give a president options. What they want to do is advance their own agenda. And I think this, this could be the danger with John Kerry, for example, as a, as a climate czar uh, with a seat on the, on the principles committee of the National Security Council. Okay, we have just a couple minutes left, so I'm going to ask you one last question. Uh, everyone try to keep the answer as abbreviated as you can. Are we going to miss Donald Trump? Um, are we going to be able to kick our Trump obsession? I asked this having watched the inauguration today on television and with each passing hour, I get on to me. This is one more hour that we haven't talked about Donald Trump. Where is he? When is he coming on TV? Where is today's outrage? So Neil, John HR, can America kick the Trump habit or are we still going to be hooked on Donald Trump for the foreseeable future? Well, a lot of people are worrying that that we won't be able to and that he'll remain a baleful presence dividing the Republican Party and seeking to return uh, uh, to get the nomination uh, in 2024. I doubt it, actually. He's going to be preoccupied with uh, litigation. Uh, his financial troubles uh, are, are barely imaginable. Who will lend to this particular real estate developer? Uh, he's been cancelled from social media. That's one reason we're not talking so much about him, because we don't hear so much from him. Good and point. I think for all these reasons, uh, he will fade a little faster than people assume. Uh, bear in mind, a lot depends on what happens to the Biden administration. And this is something that everybody has lost sight of. Events, 
things happen. You don't just sit there and set the agenda. Think of how, for example, the Kennedy administration was blown off course by the Bay of Pigs, a huge blunder made in the first uh, year of Kennedy's presidency. Johnson was no sooner uh, elected by a landslide in 64 than he escalated in Vietnam. And you know how that ended. So I think stuff is going to happen. And the more that stuff is happening to Joe Biden, the less we'll be thinking about Donald Trump. Okay, John, admit it. You missed Donald Trump already. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, I think Nancy Pelosi misses uh, Donald Trump. Um, Donald Trump was very useful for whipping up uh, what is otherwise a party that is uh, at war with itself and not sure where it's going. Um, now, we may be treated to the spectacle of an impeachment of a president who's already out of office. Uh, Trump derangement syndrome is so useful uh, that we may hear more about him uh, from that uh, side otherwise. I do not think, uh, I, I already, uh, we talked about this last week, I don't think Trump himself will be a political force at all. Uh, I think his, uh, his personal support will vanish very quickly. People are People are brutal. Um, they support you as long as you're useful and as look like you might be useful to them in the future. And there is just no chance Donald Trump will be elected to anything in the future and people will abandon him quickly. There will remain, however, with it, the polling on the number of Republicans who think this election was not justly decided is extraordinarily high. And people are able to believe something that is useful to them for a very long time. I read the New York Times, The New Yorker. They have still not admitted that George Bush won the 2000 election. Uh, there's lots of people who don't believe that past elections were uh, decided correctly. That, that myth will go on for a long time unless, uh, unless Biden reaches out and gives them a reason not to want to continue that. The, the strategy of undermining the current administration by, by keeping a myth of its illegitimacy uh, is a powerful one. And I'm, I'm afraid uh, that that may continue long past the person of Donald Trump being its embodiment. HR, you get the last word. Yeah, I'll just say, I, I think it's really regrettable, certainly, that uh, Donald Trump did so much to damage his reputation and his legacy. Uh, I think perhaps irreparably, you know, in in the, in the time since the election. I mean, with, you know, with the you know the the um, you know the false claims of of widespread corruption and so forth, the constant questioning of the legitimacy of the, of the outcome, way beyond you know due process uh, associated with uh, with each of those concerns and claims that were raised. And, and then, of course, the 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 encouraging the attack on on the Capitol, uh, and then just not showing up, you know, not having the grace, you know, and and the sense of of humility, um, and recognition that the office isn't about you, uh, to show up at the grad at the inauguration. So, you know, I think that we'll see probably continued, you know, aberrant, unusual be behavior on, on the part of of now former President Trump, and um, you know, he's not one to avoid the limelight and attention. In fact, he seeks it out and will continue to do so. Uh, I don't, it's not clear yet, I don't think, Bill. I've not heard the news of, of whether he's going to try to develop an alternative news network or what his what his presence uh, is going to be and in, in what media, now that he has been canceled from, you know, from, from social media, at least temporarily. So, uh, you know, I, I think he will definitely seek the limelight and I think he will continue to dispense with tradition, right? Which is former presidents kind of fade away, you know, and, right. and are quiet to allow the new president to, to, uh, to lead the country, uh, at least in, in, the, in the initial period. So um, I don't think we should expect that from him. And I guess the question is, how much attention will others pay to him? 
he will seek their attention. And then we'll just see, you know, to what degree he can maintain the audience. Maybe John's right uh, that, that people will be less interested uh, in, in what in what he has to say uh, because he's no longer useful to certain uh, constituencies. So HR, uh, Donald Trump is the new MacArthur. He's just going to fade away. <laughs> right. I don't think the last so, thing yeah. he's going to do. <laughs> <laughs> Gentlemen, thanks a lot. That was a great uh, uh, conversation. I look forward to doing it again next week. So that's it for this episode of Goodfellows. We'll be back with a new episode, a new conversation a week from now. On the behalf of Hoover's Goodfellows, Neil Ferguson, H.R. McMaster, and John Cochran, we wish you and yours the very best. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll do our best here at the Hoover Institution to help you stay informed. We'll see you next week. <laughs>